Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, focused on applying Mazda's customer-centric approach for vehicle design to car buying and servicing in order to create an experience centered around the customer. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com. This is Charlotte Talks. I'm Mike Collins. If you want to know about Charlotte and how we became the city we are today, you have to ask someone who's been here for a while. Well, our guest today has lived here for almost all of his 90-plus years. He lived through the hard times of the Great Depression, watched as Charlotte emerged from that era. He also lived through World War II, Jim Crow, Civil Rights, PTL, and more. But he wasn't alone. He was accompanied on this journey by his brother, Jack Claiborne would eventually become a prize-winning journalist and associate editor of the Charlotte Observer. His brother, Slug, would become a a successful restaurateur at a time when fine dining here was, let's be honest, a rarity. Uh, The story of these two brothers and the Charlotte that surrounded them, formed them, and which they played a role in forming is told in a new book. Charlotte, the slugger in me. It's a coming-of-age story of a southern city and two tenacious brothers. It's a book of memories that will fill in a lot of the blanks for those who have also lived here for a while and for newcomers as well. And Jack Claiborne is here to share some of those memories with us this hour. Welcome to the program, Jack. Good to see you. Thank you, Mike. Good to be here. You're welcome. It was In one of the promos that we recorded for this show, I said that this was a book about you and your brother. It wasn't just your story. It is the story of Charlotte through much of the 20th and into the 21st centuries. Would, would that be accurate? Was that what you set out to do? Uh, yes. Uh, I wrote, was going to write a, a memoir about the slugger and me. And uh, once I got it done, my wife read the manuscript and said, oh, Jack, there's a third character in here. You need to include Charlotte. <laughs> so it turned out to be Charlotte, the slugger, and me. And this coming-of-age story started well before you came of age. I think you were only four or maybe five when you write about moving to Charlotte or coming to Charlotte and then moving here. But you came to see... I was about see... five years old. Okay. So you came to see Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who came to town, uh, and and, and uh, you, you write about that and all the hardships of the Great Depression. I can't remember yesterday. So I'm just curious how, as a five-year-old, how those memories are still there in you. Well, I tend to see things in, in pictures. Um, and I can still see that uh, ivy-covered front yard uh, that we stood in uh, waiting for the the Roosevelt uh, limousine. I can still see that limousine passing and that hat and that sodden uh, black suit he was wearing in a rainstorm and that smile. And I can see the stadium that uh, uh, his car rode across the grassy playing field and up to a new pine uh, platform and he made his speech. I can see all those things uh, in my memory. Uh, I'm, I guess, fortunate that I have that um, that little capacity. 
I, I want to come back to that sodden suit in a minute because I think that's something that would surprise a lot of people and that we certainly would not happen today. But uh, you also call this an American story of government investments that inspired hope, self-discovery, and upward mobility in an era of family solidarity, community collaboration, and focused activity that brought goals within reach. Uh, how would you compare that to today? Well, today it's much more difficult. Uh, Charlotte was a smaller place. Uh, there was a uh, greater focus on the city. Uh, there was a feeling in the city that uh, we, a shared ambition, sort of, that everybody wanted Charlotte to do well. And so they, they contributed and there are lots of uh, indications in those early chapters of uh, all that happening. Uh, I think the father and son banquets uh, that I described at the Hotel Charlotte is a good example of, of people who wanted to see uh, Charlotte do well and uh, see its citizens do well. We were a smaller town, and, and it was a different time in American life, that's true. But I ask that question because as bad as the Depression was for so many people and as many sacrifices that those who lived through it uh, and quickly had to follow the sacrifices with more because of World War II, uh, people that appeared to acknowledge that we are all in this together. And today exactly. we've, we've kind of lost focus on the greater good, it seems to me, and instead are more concerned about what's in it for me. And you call this book, if I'm not mistaken, an antidote to that. Do you think that reading this story, your story and that of your brother, uh, and understanding the world that the two of you grew up in can lead to a sense of greater community or an appreciation for it? Well, I think it sets an example that people might think of and how how can we uh, how can we recapture? Yeah, the, the the things that Slugger and I managed to do uh, growing up are not available anymore. The ways that we earned money and and had access to uh, public affairs and public events are it's much more difficult uh, today. But we need to work on ways. Uh, to make it less difficult, to make things more accessible, to make it possible for young people to do and be upwardly mobile. Uh, I don't know what those play things are, but they're there. We just make it easier for people to climb the ladder. At, at near the end of the book, when you talk about you and your brother, uh, I guess, coming down from the peaks, the highs that you achieved in both of your respective careers in, in the 90s, you refer to the me generation, quote, unaffected by the depression of, or World War II, coming of age and bringing in a change uh, in attitudes and lifestyle, less anchored, less community-minded, and you write about the fabric of Charlotte's collaborative ethos, fraying at that time, people dividing along class and neighborhood and economic and racial lines. Do you think this is a phase we're going through, or is this a sea change that we will never go back to what it was? Oh, I think this is a phase we're going through. I think it's a phase the whole country is going through. 
I think we're in a slew uh, uh, of uh, a momentary pause, uh, a gathering of, uh, uh, I used to say that between 1865 and 1900, almost nothing happened politically. Everything happened was uh, in the economic and, and mechanical and world where you had invention of the electric light and telephone and the expansion of the railroads and so forth. And the, com the country was adjusting to all those things. And I think we're in the same kind of situation today in which there's so many new things, a new uh, uh, automatic, uh, auto uh, in intelligence and internet and social media, uh, all those things that we're trying to uh, 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 accommodate and to our, make our part of our lives we don't have time to think about and deal with uh social problems and political we're not as interested in politics as we used to be there, there seems to be a lot of when you go back to the 1930s which is where your book begins about you and your brother who's i think a year younger just a little bit less than a year younger than you uh when you go back to those times it seems that almost everything was more accessible to average people, which maybe, maybe explains why they had a greater sense of connection. And that goes right to the, fa the, the beginnings of your book, where uh, Franklin Roosevelt is coming to Charlotte to speak at Memorial Stadium, which is now where CPCC is. Uh, it was the first stadium in town. He drove in an open car from Asheville to Charlotte in a rainstorm. <laughs> So, as you, as you uh, alluded to a moment ago, his suit was soaked. It was drenched. This is the president of the United States. That would never happen today. And, of course, he had polio, and that was well... I don't want to say it was a secret, because I think people knew that, but you didn't see a lot of uh, Franklin Roosevelt walking. He was either seated or he was already positioned behind a podium. You saw him. Walking yes, I did, and everybody else did. Yes, uh, you. They, he, they lifted him out of his car. Uh, the Secret Service man and his son. Later, I found out that it was John, uh, and they quote walked unquote him uh, over to uh, the platform. It was a, a few yards, uh, but he, he he did walk. And uh, they got him standing in front of a, a, a lectern, and he began uh, unfolding his uh, prepared text. It was raining a little at the time and uh, cloudy. And then as he got ready to speak, uh, the clouds parted and the sun broke out. Uh, and, of course, uh, that just made all the difference in the world. Yeah. Uh, you start, as I said, in the 1930s, and you come to Charlotte by happenstance. Your mother, you and your, your brothers were being raised on a farm, a dairy farm that your father uh, ran. He was also a home builder, but he had passed away. And I, it's the 1930s, so everybody is living through hard times. But somehow, and this was an arduous trip. Your mother got you to Charlotte from this farm on a train and a streetcar and walking through the Elizabeth area neighborhood. And after the, after the speech was over, you were walking back, I understand it, 
and she just happened to see a house with the for rent sign and decided, okay, we'll rent it and moved everything lock, stock, and barrel to Charlotte. This is the Depression. That seems to me to be impetuous and brave. Not? (laughs) Well, I don't think it was impetuous. I think she was uh, looking for a way to... By then, this is in September 1936. My father died in January, and my brother and my older sister Phyllis had largely tried to run the farm. My brother, Harold, was 12 years old. My sister, Phyllis, was three years uh, older than that. She was 15. And it was not possible. My mother had decided uh, that she was not up to running that farm and making it up. There's no way she could make it profitable. So uh, she was looking for an opportunity to move to town. My older sister, Alice, who was um, 18 at the time, uh, had gotten a job at a hosiery mill in uptown Charlotte at 9th and Brevard Streets across from First Ward School. And can you imagine a hosiery mill in uptown Charlotte uh, today? Uh, anyway, she had, that was our sole source of, of revenue. And being in the city made it easier for Alice to get to that hosiery mill job uh, and come home again without having to pay train fares uh, from Newell into town. And and your mother turned that house that she rented into a boarding house. Now, this is something that was common in in those days, having boarding houses. Uh, It seems strange to to people today. Uh, But you write that later, with the end of the war, a housing shortage, which sounds uh, familiar, led to spikes in housing prices and spikes in rent. And the the owner of the house that you were renting decided your mother could buy the house for an inflated price or she could pay inflated rent. Your brother Harold had just returned from the war. He used the GI Bill to buy a smaller house around the corner, which you describe as another step in raising your family back to the middle class. It's also an example of something else that I want to talk about when we come back, but we have to take a break. Jack Claiborne is our guest. Charlotte the Slugger and Me is his book. It's Charlotte Talks on WFAE. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte. Using Mazda's customer-centric approach to cars to create a car buying and servicing experience where the customer is the center of their business. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com. It's Charlotte Talks on Listener Funded 90.7 WFAE and WFAE.org. I'm Mike Collins. Our guest today, Jack Claiborne, the former associate editor from the Charlotte Observer. That's just one of the jobs that he had at the Observer over a very long period of time. And his brother, Slug Claiborne, was the famous restaurateur at a time when fine dining in Charlotte, or any kind of dining beyond a meet and three, was, uh, was rare. And we'll talk about him as well. And his book, Charlotte, the Slugger and Me, a coming-of-age story of a southern city in two tenacious brothers. We were talking about uh, your mother and your older brother using the GI Bill to buy a house uh, at a time when housing prices were really high, but the GI Bill allowed GIs to come in with no down payment and a low interest rate, etc. And you call it another example of a government program working to raise people's standard of living. And you refer several times in the in the book to losing your middle class status and then regaining it because of these programs. There are a lot of angry people, Jack, in the country 
in what used to be considered the middle class. At the same time, there's a lot of pushback against any kind of government program to help. Have we as a society forgotten a lesson here? Because clearly it helped you and others like your family in the, in the Depression and World War II and beyond. The idea of government um, program uh, is... That's, a, that's one of the problems that we have. Governments seem to be investing in the wrong kinds of things. They're not investing enough in people. They're investing in, in things. And uh, uh, we need to make uh, people the, uh, the raising of people's opportunities and uh, their aspirations, uh, the goal and when this country functions best is when it is doing exactly that. And it was functioning very well in the, uh, uh, the, the days after uh, Franklin Roosevelt's uh, election and uh, after uh, uh, the uh, Lyndon Johnson years, uh, all those uh, programs uh, that made it possible for people to uh, gain uh, a foothold in the economy and and in the social order. That's that's what we need. I'm uh, reminded so often uh, of our family's experience and so grateful for all those things. I think of uh, when uh, we needed to have our tonsils out and my mother couldn't afford uh, to have uh, her two sons tonsils removed and she arranged to get us uh, a bed in the, the charity ward of Memorial Hospital and we got it done. Uh, and, uh, those things are not, I'm not sure are as available uh, as uh, yeah. there used to be in and Charlotte I, or anywhere else. And I believe that story includes the fact that she couldn't afford to pay for whatever blood you may need in that operation. So she donated blood in exchange for the blood you that, were given. Isn't um, that something that that just makes me weep almost when I read that sentence again about mother mother gave him a pint of her own. <laughs> you know, the particulars of your story are different from the stories of people going through hardships today, but you went through hardships, and, and I think it's the same uh, for many people. Your mom and your oldest brother are the heroes of the story, Harold. Your mom had limited schooling. Your brother became the man of the house when your father died. I think he was, uh, what, 12 years old? Uh, he went to the Army first before the other two of you uh, served in the, in the armed forces. Uh, when your mother passed, I think at, at uh, you were 17, he took you and your brother Slug into his house and finished your upbringing. Uh, do you think that those experiences formed your sense of family or yourself or of responsibility? Well, I think so. I think uh, the uh, experience that Slugger and I had uh, growing up Following that example, my brother, my sister Phyllis, my brother Harold, uh, they worked to hold that family together and 
our goal in life is to hold families together. Um, I'm the sole survivor of those six children um, that my mother had, but we all were very close uh, to the very end. Uh, and uh, that, that feeling of family togetherness uh, was inbred in us. Uh, this story is relatable to almost anybody who can read this book. And if it's not relatable, you'll learn something that might be valuable to you as, as you navigate your own life. But I want to go back and reminisce a little bit about old Charlotte, because I've had literally, and I've told this story in the year before, I've had people come to Charlotte who've never been here, and I'll drive them around, and they'll say, well, where is old Charlotte? Everything's brand spanking new. Where, where, where's the history here? It's here. You just got to know where to look. But uh, you grew up at a time when Charlotte was so different. You grew up at a time when they were, uh, when they, I guess, plowed a road through the forest uh, from Moorhead Street to West uh, Queens Road. That street is now King's Drive. Back then, it went through the woods. And you write about uh, how Queens Road, which now has, is lined with these towering oak trees, was not. And it was essentially a drag strip for teenage boys to use. Talk about that. Well, in the um, uh, Merch Park was created as a park. Uh, it was uh, the idea was to have uh, homes in a park-like setting, and it was going to be distinctive from the rest of the city. Uh, the trouble was that as the years went by and Marsh Park got so popular, uh, the rest of the city grew towards it. And there was a need to connect uh, Moorhead Street, which ended at Sugar Creek, uh, to Queens Road, uh, which curved around the home of J.B. Ivy. And uh, so they got a WPA grant in uh, 1935, or 36 uh, to uh, extend uh, Moorhead Street to Queens Road. And they, during the war, uh, they cut that uh, uh, King's Drive ribbon of concrete uh, through the woods into uh, Queens Road West yeah. and, and East Boulevard uh, to open up uh, another access to the city. The city was encroaching upon Myers Park, and it did so in those two things. Um, that ribbon of concrete at the King's Drive made a little uh, triangle that uh, they put a ice cream store on King's Drive Inn, and uh, I would got a job as a curb hop there and would go around and sell ice cream and sundaes and milkshakes to uh, people dating at night or, or go after the movies or before the movies. And uh, I used to do very well in making money <laughs> and Slugger uh, went up to me. He got a similar job at a at a drive-in that was much closer to home, and he made more money than I did. <laughs> and, uh, let, 
let's let's talk about slug uh, for for a second here. The the obvious question that has to be asked <laughs> for those who don't know his real name I think is Jack, but why 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 did he get the name slug? Oh, he was a bat boy for the Charlotte Central High um, baseball team. And uh, on those uh, in that team, this was about 1939 or 40. Um, and the, all the players on that team had nicknames. Uh, the third baseman uh, had a nickname, uh, and the, the catcher was known as Truck, and the shortstop was known as Skeeter, and the second baseman was known as Dynamite. And so giving the bat boy a, a nickname was just part of the yeah. the uh, routine at the time uh, there was a comic strip in the charlotte news that was just begun covering uh the charlotte news just began covering uh a comic strip called nancy and nancy had a, a nemesis uh a boy uh, who was short and fat and crew cut and his name was sluggo and the players started calling Slugger, who was short and fat and had crew cut, uh, calling him Sluggo. And Sluggo <laughs> got shortened to Slug. And uh, in those people who were uh, really affectionate to him, uh, called him the Slugger. He, uh, he uh, Slug, had a, a very successful career and opened a lot of different restaurants here and, and in other states. But he wanted as I understand it, to study law. How did he get sidetracked into the restaurant business? He was dating a girl who lived on the plaza, and her father, W.W. Uh, w. Bailey, uh, was an employee of the, ran the bakery at uh, S&W Cafeterias, and then uh, branched out and started cafeterias of his own. And Mr. Bailey was opening a, uh, uh, a restaurant in Myrtle Beach, uh, South Carolina, and uh, invited Slug to come down. And uh, Slug and Joanne by then were married. Uh, Joanne is, uh, uh, her name was Joanne Bailey. Um, they invited uh, Slug and Joanne to come down and help open that cafeteria. Slug was the front man, and Mr. Bailey was the kitchen man. And Slug enjoyed it so much uh, that he decided uh, that uh, uh, he liked meeting people and making them comfortable and happy and uh, being gregarious and uh, affable. Uh, all. And that's what that's what made these restaurants work. And if people have to understand, <clears throat> this was a time when you couldn't. There was not a restaurant on every corner in Charlotte. There were there were few and far between. Most people ate at home. Uh, he opened his own cafeteria, the Barclay, which uh, was very popular at a time when cafeterias were really kind of a thing uh, in Charlotte. Then he opened Slug's Rib on Independence and other locations as well. But the pinnacle of his, I guess. Uh, claimed to fame his success was Slug's 30th edition. This was at the top, or at least the 29th floor, of the then First Union building at College and Third. Set the dining scene for us in Charlotte. 
at the time that Slug ran all these different restaurants? Well, as you said, uh, it was most rest, most places to eat uh, that were public places were uh, meat and potatoes plates. Uh, the idea of white tablecloth dining and uh, Slug uh, opened uh, Slug's Rib, uh, and it offered a salad bar. That was a new thing to Charlotteans. They had never been in salad bars before. And they served only one item, which was roast prime river beef. But oh, Mike, what <laughs> roast prime river beef? That was, it was fork tender. And uh, they served it with the uh, cream spinach. Uh, it was just a wonderful place and different from all the other restaurants in town. It was very popular. Uh, Which kind of went against some predictions. I, 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 you, your, your, your book tells a story that I, of, of a person asking a question about Slug that I myself asked when I moved to town and found out about Slug's Rib and Slug's 30th edition. It's a story uh, that involves Charles Irvin, who was then a home builder in Charlotte, and I believe your brother was trying to open Slug's Rib about in 1970 on Independence Boulevard, and he was looking for investors. So he went to Charles Irvin, and <clears throat> Irvin listened to the pitch, and then he says, let me get this straight. You want to open a restaurant that serves only one item, and you intend to call it Slug's Rib? Are you crazy? Who in their right mind want to eat in the place named for a slimy worm? <laughs> You'll all go broke in no time. Well, clearly he was wrong. The name did not prove to be an impediment. Was that luck? <laughs> no, it was not luck. It was Slugger. Uh, you had to... Slug was the front man. Slug didn't know very much about food. Uh, and he employed people who did, and they were good at it. But uh, Slug knew how to meet people, make jokes with them, make them feel good. Uh, and his, he never went around asking uh, whether everything was all right at your table. He wanted to know, are you having a good time? Uh, he was a great host. Uh, I remember that myself. Uh, he was a great host. Um, uh, at the same time, this is happening for Slug. Things are happening for you. And I guess there's always sibling rivalry in a family, no matter how close you are. And I know that when he was showing you uh, third, the 30th edition restaurant uh, before it opened, you were already doing pretty well at the newspaper. And he says, you may be at the top of the heap of the newspaper, but I am at the top of the heap of the whole town. Because that was, I mean, you used to go there for special occasions because you could look down and see almost to King's Mountain, I think, if the, if the sky was clear, practically, practically to Myrtle Beach in the, in the other direction, which was kind of a unique experience. Uh, uh, but you were at the at the newspaper when it was at the pinnacle of its success. Do you despair at all about what's happened to that industry over the last several years? I despair about what's happening to both industries, uh, the restaurant industry and the newspaper. The newspaper is a pale shadow. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, 
all the means of supporting it, the most of the means of supporting it have withered away and we're just left with subscribers and subscribers we used to say you can't uh, the, the subscription price does not pay for the paper on which the newspaper is printed uh, and uh, that's still the case yeah it's the advertising really, model has kind of collapsed we have to stop well, slide. Well, we, we have we have to stop uh, we've got to come back with more in, in just a moment jack claiborne is our guest uh, Charlotte the Slugger and Me is his book. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, incorporating Mazda's customer-centric vehicle design by making the customer the center of business to create a better car buying experience. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com. It's Charlotte Talks on WFAE and WFHE. I'm Mike Collins. We're here with Jack Claiborne, former associate editor of the Charlotte Observer and the author of Charlotte, The Slugger, and Me. It's about he and his brother and his family growing up and about Charlotte growing up. It starts in the 1930s when uh, Jack was about five years old and goes to through the 90s. Both you and your brother served in the armed forces, your brother in the Air Force, you in the Army, and uh, uh, you went to Fort Jackson basic training, and I believe it was on your first day there uh, when you were being broken into a recruit and had your head shaved and all that good stuff, uh, that you ran into this private in a Jeep who told, summoned you over to the car, and it turned out to be Jim Babb, who was uh, at, who later would go on to become the president of Jefferson Pilot Communications, which then owned WBTV at the time. Would it be semi-accurate to say that Jim Babb kept you out of Korea because you were there in the 50s. Uh, can he take any responsibility for getting you involved in the newspaper business? Uh, Jim kept me out of Korea. <laughs> That's true. And I was already in the newspaper business. I was, uh, before I went in the Army, I had been uh, a uh, sports writer for the Charlotte Observer uh, ah. covering uh, And then uh, uh, when the Jim uh, introduced me to the major who ran troop information and education uh, at Fort Jackson. And that major said uh, he was looking for someone uh, to be the editor of the weekly base newspaper, the Fort Jackson Journal. And was I interested? <laughs> of course I was interested. And uh, uh it stopped my basic training after eight weeks, and uh, I went on on-the-job training for the last eight weeks of my basic training, and then was made editor of the Fort Jackson Journal. Um, it was a great experience. Uh, the thing that the Army did for me was it gave me perspective, and it gave me time to read. And I read all those things that I had ignored when I was in high school and uh, in the first two years of college and I got a better understanding. And when I went back to uh, 
Chapel Hill after being in, co in the army, I no longer just wanted a degree, I wanted an education. And it made a great deal of difference in my attitude and my success in uh, academics. Once you came out of the Army, <clears throat> I think you went back as a sports reporter and you covered the 1957 Final Four in Kansas City. This was the year that North Carolina, your alma mater, won two consecutive triple overtime games to win that tournament. It was, by all accounts, one of the greatest games of all time. Is it true that because of that experience, you decided to move on from sports journalism into other aspects of journalism? Is that true? Yes, it is. Why? Uh, <laughs> because I figured I would never cover anything uh, that was as exciting and as, uh, as uh, rewarding as uh, that uh, tournament, that season. That I covered most of those games. They won 32 in a row, uh, and I covered most of those games for the Observer, and uh, it was just a great, great experience. But uh, I saw in sports writing a kind of seasonal aspect of it, the same stories at the fall on the football year, the same stories in the winter on the basketball teams, and the same story in the spring on the baseball teams. And uh, it, it just, I, I thought there was, uh, in line with my increased academic interests, I thought uh, there was much more to the world than I needed to be aware of and be involved in. And so I wanted to get out of sports writing into general news. Yeah. You, uh, you were at the newspaper, at the Charlotte River, in various different uh, positions at a time when Charlotte was going through all of the growing pains that have taken us from that sleepy wannabe town to this city that everybody seems to want to come to. And you write about <clears throat> a period that we've talked about many times on this program, the turbulent 60s, as we coped with the civil rights movement. And you write about major stars like Louis Armstrong. I didn't know this. And the Boston Celtics' Bill Russell coming to town either to perform or to play or to speak. And you write about uh, them having to stay in uh, substandard black hotels, even though they could be on the stage, they couldn't stay with other uh, in, in the White Hotels, which is part of Jim Crow. You write about the march of uh, Johnson C. Smith students through downtown, led by a dentist named Dr. Reginald Hawkins, who warned city leaders that unless the barriers to black equality were lifted, future marches would be longer, louder, and angrier. And we've talked in the past on this program about how Charlotte did not want the kind of stain that other southern cities <clears throat> had because of their reluctance to integrate. So we, we came up with the idea of at least integrating our restaurants. That was the story. Your book tells the real story. That was your brother's idea. Yes. Uh, the the uh, march by Dr. Hopkins and ended at the courthouse, and uh, Dr. Hopkins said, uh, more the next if you don't do something the marches is going to be uh, more frequent and angrier and louder so uh, Mayor Berkshire uh, wanted to, the Chamber of Commerce to do something and they held meetings and 
de they desegregated first the hotels, which they had done several years earlier to accommodate trade fair, and then uh, the, the talks about integrating the restaurants was much more difficult because the restaurant owners said as soon as they start serving black people, their white trade would go away. And Slugger said, uh, Slugger was attending one of those meetings and he said, well, wait a minute. If we all did it at one time, uh, it would obviate, uh, make it uh, unnecessary. Nobody would be hurt. There would be no other place for the white clientele to go in refuge. So uh, he put forward this idea and the Chamber of Commerce uh, directors, uh, he, what Slug said was, if you directors would invite uh, a black, your black counterpart uh, to go to lunch all at the same time, all at the same day, uh, and you spread yourselves around the, all the restaurants in town, uh, then we could do it without any upset. And yeah. the Chamber of Commerce decided that was such a good idea that they did it. And it worked. It took two days of uh, lunches to do, make it happen, uh, but it worked. And uh, Charlotte won a plaudit from uh, John F. Kennedy and his brother Bobby uh, for desegregating the restaurants and setting an example for the rest of the South, which was still uh, undergoing all kinds of uh, segregation and desegregation pains and uh, creating uproars. Uh, but Charlotte was showing the rest of the country how it could be done. You, you just spoke of John F. Kennedy. You were sent by the Observer to Washington, to the Washington Bureau of the Observer, to cover the Carolinas contingent during the Kennedy administration. I think you arrived there in January of 63. John Kennedy was in the White House. Robert Kennedy was running the Justice, Justice Department. Ted Kennedy was in the Senate. You called it the world's most glamorous news center. But that was also the year, of course, that Kennedy was assassinated. Uh, you covered his efforts to pass civil rights legislation. <clears throat> he, was, uh, he wasn't successful at it. It took Lyndon Johnson, when he took office, to come in and pressure what you describe as a subdued, that's a nice word, Congress, to pass the Civil Rights Act of 1964. You say, quote, the law proved to be the beginning of the gradual transformation of the South, wiping out the Jim Crow laws that forbade citizens from attending integrated schools, dining at restaurants of their choice, and you say the result is that economic opportunities expanded for all. For the remainder of the 20th century, you say, the South outgrew the rest of the country. Are there lessons there to be applied to today? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Uh, and the South is still... Um, doing well, it could do much better. I'm afraid uh, that in much of the South, uh, the state legislatures are trying to go backward rather than forward. Uh, but uh, we, we need to see that example again. You asked about the South being, I mean, the book being an antidote. It is in that place that the book is an antidote telling uh, the 
and legislatures and the South, the South and the Southern voters uh, where their real future belongs and where their, their economic and social order uh, will take them. You would later write a weekly column for The Observer that a lot of people remember. It was called This Time and Place. Uh, it took an issue of its day and then related it to something that had happened further back in, in history. You say that your columns helped preserve the James B. Duke Mansion in Myers Park, uh, the McNinch House on North Church, the Carr House on North McDowell, and the conversion of the old sanctuary at First Baptist Church, which would go on to become... Uh, the linchpin of Spirit Square. Is that the power of journalism, or is that, or was something else at work there? Well, I think it was the power of journalism, but I think there were a lot of other things that were. Uh, Charlotte had a reputation for tearing down everything uh, in its past, and uh, there were people like uh, Ed Perzell and Dan Morrill Dan Morrill at UNC Charlotte and Ed Pazell, his buddy in the history department, uh, would go about the town making little talks uh, about uh, historic preservation and the importance of making things uh, uh, preserved and how, how good it was for the economy when you did that. Uh, if you create an historic property, all the properties around it benefit from it. And Dan and Ed did that, and that was, uh, we're now the leading preserver of historic properties in North and South Carolina. We have more properties than any other city in the state. Uh, people often ask how this city went from that sleepy town with ambition to one of the fastest growing cities in the country. There was a time, you say, when politicians and business people worked hard to make Charlotte stand out. And you name them in this book. Everybody knows about the Belks and the Ivies, the, the two department store families. Uh, ben Douglas, whose name is on the airport, Ed Crutchfield and uh, Hugh McCall, who uh, created the big, some of the biggest banks in the country, along with a lot of other people that you talk about. They made a lot of decisions, you say, about the future of this town, and then they set out to make it happen. You also write, the city taxed itself to build better schools, a teaching hospital, large parks and playgrounds, and after World War II, three public colleges. And you note that the South, often following Charlotte's lead, was grudgingly relaxing its Jim Crow barriers and conforming to the nation's biracial culture. That approach, taxing ourselves to build amenities rather that benefit everyone, seems to be very beneficial. We don't seem to like to do that much anymore, Jack. Well, we're doing it. Uh, uh, I noticed that the uh, uh, county manager announced earlier this week that uh, um, that uh, they were going to be uh, one cent tax increases and uh, in, in one cent increases in the property tax for the next several years. Uh, so uh, the county is expanding its programs. It used to be the city that was doing. Uh, the progressive things, but now it seems to me that that role has shifted to Mecklenburg County. I wish the city and the county were all one thing so that they could speak with one voice, yeah. and I deal with that in the 
in the book about the con, uh, efforts to consolidate the city and county governments, uh, it would be so much more efficient, so much more effective, and Charlotte and uh, Mecklenburg County would do much better in dealing with uh, counties that surround us and with the state legislature, if that was the case. I don't want to pin, unfairly pin a label on you, but just reading this book and, and having talked with you in the past and, and, and reading your newspaper writings, I have gleaned that you are somewhat of a liberal. Uh, your, brother, your brother, however, was a hardline conservative, your words. You say he didn't like Democrats, he didn't like government, hated regulations, and didn't like liberals. But he voted for Obama, and he's the one whose idea integrated the restaurants here. How do you explain that? Well, I think um, Slugger was a people person more than he was a Republican or more than he was a uh, conservative. He was a people person, and he wanted to do those things that made people happy and comfortable and met their needs. He also raised a very, very liberal daughter, uh, his daughter Priscilla. <laughs> who contributed to this book. I have less than a minute left, Jack, but this is not the first time you've written the book. You've written many books. You've also written other books dealing about Charlotte history. What do you hope readers will take away from this book? They will take away from this book the idea that they need to invest in people and that they need to pay attention to the abilities of people to... Uh, rise in uh, uh, economic opportunity and upward mobility and have decent uh, schools. The, we just need to go back to those. Uh, I spent some time uh, in the book talking about how. I'm going to have to stop you, Jack, because we're out of time. I'm very sorry. But the, the book is beautifully hey. written. That is no surprise. It's Jack Claiborne's Charlotte, the Slugger, and Me, a coming of age story of a Southern city and two tenacious brothers. Thanks. Celebrating 25 years on the air, Charlotte Talks with Mike Collins is a production of 90.7 WFAE. Support for Charlotte Talks comes from Mazda of South Charlotte. Our executive producer is Wendy Herkey. The senior producers are Gabe Altieri and Sarah Delia. Our engineer is Joby Sprinkle. For more information about Charlotte Talks, to listen to past episodes, or subscribe to the podcast, visit wfae.org slash charlotte talks. Additional support for WFAE programming comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, focused on applying Mazda's customer-centric approach for vehicle design to car buying and servicing in order to create an experience centered around the customer. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com.